When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I've heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down, buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. He said to them, you were spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Well, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, before we jump into that story, let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, each, each week we open your word to pause that you... You would bring life through, through your word. When you speak, life happens. And so, Lord, just speak. For wherever we're at this morning, God, would you, would you speak into our lives through this story, through the story of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most powerful human experiences is to be forgiven. And one of the most destructive human experiences is refusing to forgive. And we know this, we know this instinctively because we love stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. They move us until it's our turn to forgive. Then we tap into our love of revenge. And this has come up in a, in a couple different ways on social media in the last few uh, months. There was a story of a man in California who discovered that people had dumped trash on his property. And so he, he dug through their trash. He found their address. He rounded up all of their trash and he took it to their front lawn and dumped it there. It's a picture. 
Or I don't know if you heard recently the story here in Kansas City of Danielle Reno, whose, whose car was stolen from a quick trip, and she tracked the thieves uh, through use of credit cards, her cell phone, and, and she tracked them down. She found them, and, and when she found them, she live-streamed, like tracking them down, live-streamed their arrest to humiliate them to her entire social media audience. We all love a good revenge story. But what if that man who found the, tra- the trash in his yard had taken it to the dump instead of to that person's yard? What if Danielle Reno had found the thieves of her car and said, it's yours. You can have it. Because as crazy as that sounds, that is not even beginning to touch the forgiveness that happens in the story that I just read for you. What happened to Joseph, his brothers, his family. Forgiveness is far more outrageous in that story than it would have been had Danielle given her car to this thief or had that man taken the trash to the dump. And so what I want to do this morning, I, want to, I, I, I skipped over a lot of narrative. I want, to, I want to tell that story in about five minutes. And then I want to ask three questions of that, of the story of Joseph forgiving his brothers. And the three questions are, one, what is forgiveness? Uh, two, why, why should we forgive? Why forgive? And thirdly, how do we become forgiving people? So about five minutes of the story, uh, what is forgiveness, why forgive, and how we become forgiving people. So first, the, the story. And we have to remember, we've been in Joseph's life for a number of weeks now, and his life started with his, his family, his brothers, physically assaulting and attacking him and throwing him into a pit where there's no food or water, leaving him there until they find people where they can sell Joseph off into slavery. And things for Joseph, uh, they get a little bit better, and then he's falsely accused of something, and he ends up in prison. And he is, again, a product of injustice and oppression and great suffering. And through all this, Joseph just kept at it, and, and he kept working despite being a slave, despite being in prison. And, and one day, uh, he gets a reputation of becoming someone who can interpret dreams really well. And Pharaoh, the, the ruler of Egypt, the most powerful person in the world, has a dream that no one understands and someone here, someone realized there's this guy in prison named Joseph who knows dreams, ask him. And Joseph comes to Pharaoh and, and interprets Pharaoh's dream and says, Pharaoh, what's going to happen is there's going to be seven years of famine, or seven years of, of plenty, seven years of rich harvest. And after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. And Pharaoh believed Joseph that he was right. And put, Pharaoh ends up putting Joseph in charge of the entire grain storage relief efforts over the next several years so that literally tens of thousands of people's lives can be, can be saved. And so meanwhile, uh, things were, were going not so well for Joseph's father and his brothers, the people who were left behind. They get hit with the famine, and they, they now need to go looking for food. And so you heard the beginning of the narrative. Jacob, the father, sort of in a, in a non-fatherly way, just says, what, what are you doing? Go get food. And that's essentially what the... The narrative says, and it's, it's also clear that they don't trust one another anymore because Jacob will not send Benjamin with the brothers to go and get the grain. The reason for that is Joseph, uh, back a couple weeks ago, Joseph was the favorite son of, uh, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, which meant he showed favoritism. That was, that's what set all of the problems off uh, to begin with. And, and Joseph's brother Benjamin, they have the same mother. Now Jacob's doing it to Benjamin as well, favoritism again. 
And Jacob, because he's already lost one son, Joseph, in his eyes, he's not willing to put the other one at risk. And so he says, the ten brothers can go, but Benjamin will stay behind with me. And so the ten brothers go to Egypt to find food, to get food. And they end up, unbeknownst to them, asking to buy food from the very brother they had physically assaulted, attacked, and sold into slavery. And Joseph knows it's them, but they don't know it's him. The people who ruined their lives, that ruined his life, now stand before him, and he has complete power to do whatever he wants to them. And that's why when you begin reading the narrative, it appears he's being a little harsh to them. This is spoke roughly to him, and he accuses them of being spies. But that, if, if you think Joseph is acting in a, in a, in a vengeful manner, I think it's a mistake, because like, if he wanted to, to get revenge, he could. He's the second most powerful person in the world. He can arrest them, he can have them executed, he can have them thrown in prison, he can do whatever he wants to them. But instead, he accuses them of being spies, and then he puts them in prison, but only for a couple days, and then he lets them out. And he sends them with food, and he, as he sends them out back to their hometown, he says, I think you're spies, I think you're lying to me, and the only way that I know you're telling me the truth is you will bring your last brother back. You'll bring your 11th brother to me. So he sends them away, they go away, they go back to their father, Jacob, and they eat all the grain they've bought, and they don't go back. They don't take the brother back to Joseph, because obviously Jacob doesn't want them to. They don't want to put Benjamin in harm's way. But they eat all the grain, and they run out again. And they have to go back. And as they're going back, the brothers swear to Jacob, we will do whatever we can. We will not let any harm come to Benjamin, but you must, he must come with us, or we will not come back with food. So they send, Benjamin goes with them this time. And yet, again, they're in front of Joseph, not knowing this is the brother whom they betrayed, who they ruined, their, ruined his life, threw him into slavery. They're in front of him, and again, Joseph, this time he's like, all right, you're telling me the truth. He's, he sells them grain, but he puts silver in Benjamin's pack. No one know, Benjamin doesn't know, no one knows. And sends them out again, and they get out away from Joseph in the palace, and Joseph sends guards after them, and they find the silver in Benjamin's pack, and he, he's a thief. He's stolen from Pharaoh. So they all go back. And now here, here's a disaster, right? Jacob said, Benjamin must come back. And now Joseph says to his brothers, listen, you all can go. You're free. Only the thief has to stay in prison. The thief is mine. And, and Benjamin is, is going into prison. And in that moment, Judah, one of the, the 11 brothers, actually the brother whose idea it was in the first place, to sell Joseph off into slavery, to, to, get, to get him, because he's the favorite. Judah, the one who set this whole plan in motion through his evil, he steps forward and he says to what he doesn't know is the brother that he betrayed at one point. He says, if, you ta- if Benjamin doesn't return with us, my father will die. You can't. Take me instead. And in that moment, Joseph breaks down, he sends everyone out of the room, and he breaks down weeping, and he reveals himself to his brothers. He says, I'm Joseph. I'm the brother you sold in to slavery. And in that moment, forgives them for what they've done to him. This is powerful, intense story. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us today? So I just want to take three questions to that story. What is, what is forgiveness in the first place? Uh, why 
should we forgive, and how do we become people of forgiveness? So first, uh, what, is, what is forgiveness? What's a good definition of what forgiveness is? And, and if you're anything like me, how I spent my week kind of meditating in this text, hopefully at this point you're thinking about people you need to forgive, people you don't want to forgive, or you haven't recognized yet, this is the moment still yet to come, of the people in your life that, like Joseph, you need to turn and, and offer forgiveness too. And yet, this is also where I need to be clear, because I think forgiveness is often misunderstood. We, we think of forgiveness as something other than what it actually is. And so I, I want to try as best I can to define what forgiveness is in, in sort of three ways out of this text. That forgiveness, in many ways, is about refusing some things. And with forgiveness, it refuses three things. And the first thing it refuses to do, it, it refuses to ignore and I think one of my, my biggest fears in this sermon is that you'll begin to think, okay, well, forgiveness, it's so crucial. And what forgiveness is really saying is that, that whatever happens to you is not a big deal. Lighten up, you know, just live and let live. Be happy, right? Don't, don't freak out about it. Just let it go. Like that's, that's sort of the way I think often we think about forgiveness is what, what we're saying is the wrong committed against you isn't that big of a deal. And it's your problem and you're making something big into to something that's not. And that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not ignoring what happened. Forgiveness is saying that what, what was wrong that happened, it, it does matter. And that's displayed throughout the story. Joseph does not ignore what happened. He doesn't dismiss or, or uh, lessen the intensity of what had happened to him. And you see this through the, through the emotions of Joseph. And again, we didn't read all four chapters. But a number of different moments in the narrative, Joseph just breaks down. He loses it emotionally. So verse 23 of chapter, uh, verse 23 of chapter 43, um, the brothers did not know Joseph understood them, for he was, there was an interpreter between them, and Joseph turned away from them and wept. Uh, verse 30 of chapter 43, then Joseph hurried out, he ran out of the room, for his compassion grew warm for his brother Benjamin, and he sought a place to weep. And in the first verse of the second part of what I read, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. Forgiveness is not saying, this doesn't matter, it's okay, don't worry about it. Forgiveness actually starts by, by acknowledging what, what you did deeply hurt. It's caused enormous emotional pain in my, in my life. I mean, that's where Joseph is. He's feeling that. He's not stuffing it away. He's not saying it's no big deal. He's feeling the betrayal of his own family. And anything that we forgive has to start by saying, I'm not going to ignore what happened. It happened. It was wrong. And the pain I feel is, is real. And that's the first step of forgiveness. First step of forgiveness is not saying what you did didn't matter and I shouldn't feel this. No, it's, it's what you did did matter. And that's why we're here because what was done was wrong. It's not to be dismissed. It's not to be trivialized. It's not to be tucked away. There's a wrong on the table that, that, that requires forgiveness. So when forgiveness refuses to ignore, it doesn't, just, it doesn't lessen the pain of what happened. But second, forgiveness refuses the role of judge. When I was pastoring in a, in a previous church, just to be clear, not in Kansas City, so you don't know these people, um, but there was a family in a church that had a pretty successful cleaning business, and, and it was going really well. And then one, uh, it was all kind of, uh, it was cousins and aunts, it was a, a number of, of family members, and until one of the family members uh, started stealing from people, they were, the houses they were cleaning, and she got caught. 
Um, so the thief was caught and immediately caused a, a rift in the family. And the people of, of my church that, that I was a, a part of, they were right to be really angry. They were right to pursue justice. They were right to get the authorities involved. They were right to make sure restitution was made. But at some point in the process, someone who was in my church in particular moved from from being a, a person, a part of this business, to, to the judge who was going to begin to enact punishment that she thought was right on other members of the family who weren't doing what she expected them to do. And it began to, to destroy the family. I mean, this family split right down in the middle between those who wanted uh, inordinate revenge on the thief and those who felt like forgiveness was warranted. They were going to pay their, their penalty in prison for this. Like there was, there was real justice happening but the person in my congregation did not, did not want to forgive and more than that began to dole out her own punishments because she felt like the state's punishments weren't enough. And she slid from being a wrong defender who needed to offer forgiveness to the judge who was going to decide what the right punishment was going to be. And every time you and I are wronged in some way, whether it's a harsh comment or someone steals from you, I mean... All, the whole gamut, anytime we're wrong and we're placed in the position of needing to forgive another person, we face the enormous temptation to move out of, a, of, of an offended party who now needs to forgive and into the role of the judge who's going to mete out the punishment that we feel is right. And what's interesting to me about the story is Joseph, who actually positionally is a judge. He's the second most powerful person in the world. He can look at these brothers and say, you are your murderers, you are uh, your, your oppressors, you don't get food, and you're going to prison for what you did to me. He had, every, he had every legal right to do that, but he doesn't. And I want to skip ahead. This will be our text for next Sunday, but I just want to pull one thing I don't have time to get into next week. In, in Genesis 50, the brothers still aren't sure Joseph has forgiven them, right? This, this lasts, because when you have hurt this big, it's, it takes a while to reconcile. And the brothers are afraid once their father Jacob dies that, that Joseph's now, now that dad's gone, it's like, well, now I'm going to get him, right? That's what they think is going to happen. So they sent, uh, they sent jo Joseph a note which essentially uh, said, uh, dad died and his dying wish was for you not to hurt us. It's like, this is not, you know, don't, don't hurt us. And, and Joseph, he's, he's moved to tears again, and he starts the response to that note by saying, by saying this, he says, uh, essentially he says, no, I won't do it. He says, do not fear. This is Genesis 50, verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He essentially says, I don't have the right to hold this against you. Which is like, if anyone ever did, he, did, he absolutely had the right to hold that against them. And he, but he says, no, I can't. If I, if I move into that chair, if I take the, the role of judge, it's wrong. Vengeance is not mine, Joseph says. I will not be the one who enacts revenge. And when we are wronged, it is so easy for us to, to take the place of judge. And what that looks like is when we're wronged, we start by nursing a grudge. And little thoughts, little you know, negative feelings towards that, they grow. And that, that turns into to bitterness. And bitterness turns, turns us into cold people. And coldness ultimately makes us self-centered, a judge. And what started as evil done to us becomes evil at work in us and through us. 
to enact the vengeance and the revenge we think is right. And this destroys families, destroys churches, destroys relationships. When we take the place of judge, Joseph says, I'm not God. And none of us are. None of us have all the information we need to exact the right punishment on another person. You don't know their thoughts, their feelings, their experiences, their history. You don't have, we don't have anywhere near the right information to say, I know what should happen to you because of what you did to me. We don't have that. And again, that's not to say the state does have that role, right? I'm not talking about not uh, punishing people who break the law. I'm talking about things done to us where we decide we're going to mete out the proper punishments to bring about justice. So when I, I, I take the place of, of judge, it won't bring justice to the situation, but it will bring destruction to me. And so this morning, who are you nursing a grudge against? I've been thinking a lot about this lately, um, not because of, of a spiritual reason. I mean, just I sort of have the natural temperament where it's pretty easy for me to forgive. And so I think when I, when I started writing the sermon, it this sort of felt like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell some people some things to get off my mind. Because this is something that I really care deeply about. And, and the reality is that this is not like a, a spiritual gift. Like, this isn't like, God, you know, I'm a really mature person because I forgive. No, it's because I'm like really detached from feelings. And so people can do things to me and it's like, whatever, it's cool, I don't care. Um, that's typically, I mean, just like, just like I grow a beard, I, I just forgive. Like, that's sort of, I, I have no control over that. There's nothing I did to deserve that. It just, it just that's sort of naturally who I am. But I'm in a season right now where, um, you know, I, I mentioned this last week, where uh, me, Andrew, and Katie are going to run the Kansas City Half Marathon. So I'm eating very intentionally. I'm fasting from a lot of things. And I'm running a lot. And if you ever want to realize how wicked of a person you are, don't eat certain foods and start running a lot. You just become a, just all the sin just starts coming out and uh, and so yeah, yesterday I was on a long run with Andrew and Katie. We we ran together. It was seven miles, and we're like the last half mile. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm barely gonna make it. Right? I'm barely, and I'm barely gonna finish. And and Katie pipes up uh, in front of me. She's like, I could, I could go about two more miles after this. <laughs> and if I had able, been able to breathe at this point, I would have said, nobody asked you how many more miles you can go. Uh, but it took about 24 hours for me to, to say that, and now I can, so I wanted to get that off my, my chest. But, but this, like a season of fasting and physical exhaustion, it reveals things in you. And what I've, what I've realized, especially in the, the last week, is, is there are just some, there are some, there's some forgiveness issues I have not worked through in my own heart, where I've become the judge, where I've nursed a grudge. And this, this is a really important message and a really important place for for us to enter into. So I want you to hear I'm a fellow traveler with you on this, but I also want to speak directly to like what a church community should be because um, so I, want to be, I love being a pastor, and I love being a pastor here. I consider myself really lucky to serve y'all as, as a pastor. And so, I, so this is not like a, hey, we got a big problem with this, but I, what I do want to say is that by far the most discouraging thing for me in my life as a pastor and there's not a close second. This is number one by far. The most discouraging thing for me as a pastor is the number of grudges that get nursed within a church community. 
from misunderstandings, people who don't meet our expectations, people who have disappointed us. And because we're a bunch of sinners gathered, there's, it's guaranteed to continually happen that people in this room will disappoint you in your community group when you're serving together. People are going to disappoint you. And the church so often becomes a community of judges ready to pounce. And yet this should be the most forgiving place on earth. And that has not been my experience in the church. 36 years, 15 years of being a pastor, is that the church is not the most forgiving place in the world. And it should be. And I want us to be the most forgiving place. Not because we ignore sin, right? It's not, this is, it doesn't matter. Get over it. That's, no. No, we name sin. That was wrong. And that, that liturgy of that was wrong, I'm a sinner, is quickly followed up with, and I forgive you. I'm not going to nurse a grudge against this. I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not going to be your judge and make you pay for this. So for forgiveness, it refuses to take the role of judge. It refuses to ignore. And the last, and this is, I've sort of hinted at this, the last thing forgiveness refuses to do is it refuses revenge. And Joseph's actions in this story, they're confusing to a lot of people because he speaks harshly to them. He puts his brothers in prison. He, like, sets up Benjamin to get arrested and get in trouble. It's like, what is going on here? Like, what, like, is it, because he's clearly not giving revenge, because if he wanted revenge, he could just killed him on the spot. No one would have said anything, because that's, that's how justice worked in Egypt. Joseph was that powerful. So what was, like, why is Joseph doing these things? And Derek Kidner, who, uh, who has a really helpful little commentary on, on Genesis, he says that what Joseph is doing, doing is he's alternating sun and frost to break the brothers open to grace. He gives them just enough taste of the consequences of their action, a few days in prison, to let them feel and understand what they had done to him. But it's only three days, right? And then he, then he comes with son, and then he's giving them food. He's give, he actually gave them money as they left. He, he extends grace and kindness to them. He's not trying to get revenge. He's trying to open them up. He cares more about their redemption than revenge, and then Kidner points out that Joseph sets up the exact scenario, the exact same scenario where they sold Joseph off into slavery with Benjamin. They're standing in front of Joseph. They don't know it's him. And Benjamin, the favored brother, can be sold off into prison and they save their skins and they can go home. They can get off, off scot-free again. Get rid of the favored son. They can go back. They've got their grain. Joseph, Joseph even says, just go. I don't want you. I just want him. He's the thief. He's mine. You're free. And Judah, who was the one who originally attacked, was the, the ringleader, steps forward and says, take me instead. Which show, like what Joseph is doing is he is, he's pursuing their redemption. And what's, what's happened in this moment is proof Judah has changed. He's a different man. And rather now than actually selling his brother off into slavery, he's willing to go into prison himself to save his brother. And it could not be more of a redemptive change in Judah's own life. And I'm like, this is a beautiful story. I, I realize well, probably a question in your mind is, well, what if, what if Judah instead had said, sounds great to me, bye. <laughs> what happens then? Because probably a lot of our stories of forgiveness are not met by change in the people that we forgive. And, and I think the, probably the big question is how do you forgive someone who does not acknowledge a wrong? Let me say two things to that. 
First, that forgiveness is entirely independent of what the other person does for you. Forgiveness is not in any way, shape, or form based on what the other person's disposition to you. It's entirely a you thing. We'll talk about the, 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 the them thing in a second, but forgiveness is all about you. And what forgiveness does is forgiveness lets go of the demand that that other person make things right with you. If they don't want that, you just say, okay, that's fine. I will not make demands on you to make things right with me. I'll let go of that burden. And so ultimately, forgiveness is saying, you wronged me, but I will absorb the wrong. I will pay the debt, and I will not make you repay it. You, you don't have to do anything for, for forgiveness. I'm forgiving you. I will not hold this against you. I will not nurse a grudge. I will not, ma- I will not make you pay for this. You're forgiven. So that's forgiveness entirely you. But secondly, that what I think is in the back of our minds is, well, well what, is, what is reconciliation and trust? And here's the thing, if someone is wronging you and they don't care and they don't acknowledge it and you take it to them and they don't repent and they're not open, you can't, you can't make reconciliation happen. You can forgive them and not expect re- reconciliation, but you can't make someone else reconcile to you. And listen, this, this is a whole other sermon, but, but then even if someone's reconciled to you, then the question is, do they prove trust over time? Doesn't mean, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean you trust them and that you say, oh, here, here's the keys of the kingdom. No, 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 no. And that, again, that's another sermon, but just forgiveness is all on you. Reconciliation is they take that step towards you. Trust is, that, is the proof that they're not going to go back and, to, to the thing they did again and again and again. Again, it's another sermon, but that's, forgiveness is just us. And it's, it's coming to the settled position of, honestly, what Judah is doing is it's substitutionary sacrifice. It's me saying, all of, the, all of the pain incurred by your wronging me, I will absorb that in myself. And I will not turn it back against you. It's, it's mine. And I will hold it, and I will take it, and I will not repay you with it. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness absorbs the debt. So that's what, what forgiveness is. And it's okay, why forgive? Because that sounds awful. Revenge sounds like more fun. Like, I'm going to dump some trash in some yard. Let's go do that. I think we could round up and probably all do that this afternoon if we wanted to. So why forgive? And there's two reasons. Uh, God and yourself. And, and so let's start with, with, with God. That God, God is an outrageous forgiver. Right? He's the guy who steals car. He's like, no, you can have it. It's yours. You dump trash in his log. He's like, it's okay. I'll take care of this. It's, it's, it's mine. He's an outrageous forgiver. And here's the thing. If you want to follow Jesus... You must be the same. And if you don't want to be the same, then you do not want to follow Jesus. And if you think that's strong, Jesus was even stronger than what I just said. And, and, and let me illustrate this with a story. I was, I was with a friend this week, and his, his dad abandoned him when he was a child. Went off, um, actually married another woman without divorcing his own mom. Wrecked his family, wrecked uh, his, his kids, wrecked, I mean, wrecked everything. And, and he, he went back to my friend in his college years and said, I'm sorry, I, will you forgive me? And my friend, I mean, again, not necessarily reconciliation and trust, but forgiveness, right? Is for, can he forgive? And he, he, his response to his dad in the moment was, I'm going to have to think about that. And when he went away, he, he, just, he recognized at that moment, this, this is when I decide whether or not I'm going to follow Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't give me an option here. Like, I don't have, t- there's not two paths with Jesus. Jesus is a forgiver. 
And regardless of the wrong done, again, doesn't mean reconciliation and trust. Doesn't mean they become best friends. But in terms of forgiveness, re- refusing to withhold, refusing to make his, his dad pay, he just looked at it, he said, that was the moment I had to decide, am I going to follow Jesus or not? And Jesus was explicit about this, so much so that when he, he taught us to pray, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Doesn't it, Father, forgive us our sins and then move on. No. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus always connected our openness to being forgiven by him with our willingness to be forgiven by others. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, listen, if you want forgiveness, you can't come to me nursing grudges and enacting revenge on people. And when they hurt you, you hurt them back. It's not how it works with me. And that's not for a moment to, to lessen or to deaden any of the pain that, that the things wronged to us or done to us aren't deeply painful. That Jesus isn't empathetic in that. We'll get to that in a second. But Jesus said, listen, if you want to come to me and be a vengeful person, you can't follow me. You can't. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So one reason, you, listen, you, why forgive? That's the way of God. He's an outrageous forgiver. And if you want to know him and be near him, you have to be like him. And that's, that's what he's like. That's one. But secondly, if, you, if, that's, if that doesn't do it for you, um, like you have very self-interested reasons to forgive other people. Right? And, and what's so hard about forgiveness is that the moment wrong is done to us, we are, we are standing on thin ice. And it's not our fault. Right? A wrong was done to us. And now one wrong step and we can sink quickly because once evil has been done to us it can take roots and it become evil in us and evil we act through us evil done to others through us and if you don't forgive this is what happens and Corey Timboom, she wrote the book the hiding place she was living in Holland during the time of World War II uh, for much of her life she hid uh, Jews to protect them from Nazis eventually she was found out and her and her sister were sent to a concentration Camp and Corey eventually was uh, was was got out and lived, but her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. and And after the war, she wrote a book. It's famous called "The Hiding Place." She traveled the world speaking about the gospel of forgiveness. And she was in a church in Germany, and and spoke on forgiveness. And after the talk, a man who was one of the guards in the concentration camp that she recognized walked up to her. I mean, just like Joseph, he didn't know who she was. That that he oversaw her in the concentration camp, but she knew who he was. And he came up to her and he said, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. I've repented. You mentioned you were in a concentration camp, and I've asked God for forgiveness, but I need to ask you, will you forgive me? And here's how she reflected on that request of that man. She said, I had to do it. I knew that. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of World War uh, one had uh, I, since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remain invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. 
When evil is done to us, we have two options, and there are only two options. One is to forgive and let it go and release it. The other is to wither away in bitterness. And Corey, she, she forgave that man. And, and we should all be asking, how do you get to that place? And that's a, right, this isn't like someone you know, called me something and embarrassed me in front. I mean, this is the worst of oppression and injustice that human beings have ever, have ever perpetrated against one another. And, and she, her sister died because of this man. And she forget, how did we become people like that? And the answer, it's, it's, what's, it's what's in this narrative. What, the moment that changes everything in, jo, in Joseph and his brother's narrative is in verse 33 of chapter 44, where Judah, Judah gives a long speech, right? Benjamin, the favored brother, is about to be in prison, and, and the brothers can go home without him, and Judah steps up, and he says this, to, to his, not knowing he's speaking to the brother he betrayed, he says this. He says, now therefore, please let your servant remain, let me remain, Instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Then Joseph could not control himself. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. What changes the narrative is the moment of substitutionary sacrifice. It's Judah stepping up and saying, take me instead. And all forgiveness is, is substitutionary sacrifice. It's the wrong you've done to me. Take me instead. I'll absorb it instead. What you did hurt, right? It was real. We're not ignoring it. It caused pain. But I will absorb that into myself, and I will not turn it into bitterness. I will not turn it into revenge. I will turn it into kindness and love and grace. And listen, the only way that you will ever really have the power to do that, to the things that deeply hurt us the way Corey had in her own life, is that you see and you understand this has already been done for you. The Jesus, who was the, the son of Judah, right? The, the whole line doesn't go through, or salvation does not go through Joseph, the good son. It goes through, through Judah. And Judah's greater son, Jesus, he steps forward to go to a cross to say to all of us, take me instead. And the first step of, of entering into the life of Jesus, of seeing what life with Jesus is, is saying you have debts on your account. You have sin in your own heart, in your own Life. And instead of God standing over you and judge and condemning you to prison immediately, he gives his own son, Jesus, who stands up and says, take me instead. He goes onto a cross and absorbs all, into himself all that we have done wrong, all that's broken in us, all the grudges we've nursed, the bitterness that we've cultivated, the coldness in our hearts. He took all of that onto himself and said, take me instead. And if you, have, if you don't know Jesus like that, taking your sin on himself, saying, take me instead, then you have not met Jesus as he is. If you think Jesus is someone to make you a better person, you're wrong. He takes our sin, our wrongs, our brokenness, and says to God the Father, don't take them, take me instead. And if, you, if, if that is your fundamental experience of life, there is no way you can ever hold a grudge against anyone. The church should be the most forgiving, beautiful place because we've all had this experience. And I think part of why the church isn't is we have not all had that experience. And some of us have not, not let Jesus take our stuff instead. And we're holding on to it. So we don't really trust him. He's not really our savior. We're not really following him. It's something we do on the side. And if that's you this morning, like, listen, this, 
What's beautiful about this invitation, it's always there, right? Take me instead. That's Jesus' fundamental invitation to you is that he was taken instead of you. And that invitation never goes away. And so when Corey Tinboon, she took the Nazis' hands to forgive, she says, this happened. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, the inc- an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. One of the most powerful human experiences is to be forgiven. Have you heard Jesus say, take me instead for you? Have you let Jesus forgive you? Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you that there, there are many of us in this room who we have lived the experience of Jesus taking our place. And so in a moment, when we get up to go to the communion table, we don't, we don't go as, as condemned sinners that you're furrowing your brow at, but we go as forgiven brothers and sisters, welcomed at your own table, bought and paid for by Jesus, your son. So for, for those of us in that story, God, we need to become forgiving people. Help us. Help me. And for those of us in this room who never had a moment of repenting of sin, of, of entering into life with Jesus, recognizing he took my place, open our hearts to that. And make this moment of substitution real for us so we could walk out of here freed of the burden of our sin and also freed to go and be loving, forgiving presence in this world. God, do that in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.